This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. The way it works in real court rather than in Judge Eileen Cannon's kind of kangaroo court (laughs) is that you have to put forth evidence to support your claims. And if you don't, I won't believe them. Part of the reason I wrote this book is that I think we all have to do that work. It is not for lawsuits. It is not just for judges. It is for every single one of us. And I hate to say this, but I think it's the work of the rest of our lives. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is a podcast about the courts, the law, the rule of law, the Supreme Court, justice itself. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I write about those things for Slate. And this week, I also signed books. I signed many, many books, (laughs) which is fun and uh, totally thrilling. And hello, Florida, and hello, Washington, D.C., and New York City, and Charlottesville. Uh, But also, my hand is hurting, and my voice is fraying. Uh, But... My Vocal Chords and Carpal Tunnel for Lady Justice, my new book, is really a very minor matter in the face of so very, very much legal news that has dropped this week, Uh, much of it uh, positive. So I have called upon my brilliant sidekick, Slate's very own Mark Joseph Stern, to help catch us up with all things cake and eating cake, too, and all frustrated, retired Supreme Court justices spilling some tea, and also the law of declassifying things with your mind, Uh, Slate Plus members are going to have access to an extended version of this conversation with Mark. Thank you to our Slate Plus members for helping support the journalism we do here at the magazine. Now, later on in the show, we are going to head on over to one of, I think, the greatest bookstores in the land, Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., where I had the wonderful but humbling experience of having the interview tables turned on me. Professor Michelle Goodwin was there at a live event on Wednesday to ask me about all things Lady Justice, and we also talked about court expansion, the enduring aftershocks of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and the unsung poetry of Polly Murray. It is a deep and wide conversation. I loved it so much, and I am glad to share it with those of you who couldn't actually be there live and in person. But first, we must turn to Mark Joseph Stern, who is going to help us catch up with some of the big, big legal news of the week. Welcome, Mark. So happy to be here, bursting past the paywall right onto the main show. Just you and me chatting about all the great legal news that happens week after week in this glorious country. You are under the big top, my friend, without (laughs) a net. Um, And I guess, Mark, the big legal story, in my mind at least this week, has to be the kind of pincer move that's happening around Mar-a-Lago. It's happening on the one hand from Judge Deary, the special master that Donald Trump Trump uh, sought to put in place and then happening on the other hand with an 11th Circuit panel, improbably enough to Donald Trump appointees that offered a beatdown to the Trump team on the other. Now, I have said this before and you have answered it before, but it certainly seems as though the ex-president is in big trouble in ways that I don't know. I likened him to a greased watermelon a few weeks ago, but it feels as though this is going to be hard to slip out of. 
Do you remember when BuzzFeed decided to put one rubber band after another on a watermelon and see how many it took until it burst open? I feel like what we have seen over the last week is an escalation in the rubber bands going around the watermelon that is Donald Trump. And I will never predict when that watermelon's going to explode, figuratively, but it certainly feels like the pressure has been ratcheted up. And I am more glued to the live stream that is Donald Trump's legal troubles right now, uh, more so than I may have ever been in the past. Things are getting very difficult for him. And they really only stand to get tougher. So walk us through, on the one hand, you know, this special master ploy was always, uh, you know, it seemed kind of brilliant. It seemed like a delay tactic. It seemed like a way of keeping this from going forward. Judge Deary, as I said, does not seem to be here to play. Talk a little bit about what he's done in the very compressed amount of time that he has been in charge of this case. Yeah, so two really important things. First is just procedurally. He has, as you said, compressed the timeline for special master review, uh, much more so than Trump's legal team would like. Clearly, Trump's team wanted this to be a stalling tactic. And it has had so much success in other courts just running down the clock by throwing all of these ridiculous obstacles in the way. But Judge Deary came out of the gates saying, I want this done fast. I want to be efficient. I want this to be a weeks-long process at most. Let's get this done well in advance of Halloween. Um, and he is on track to accomplish that goal. And so this uh, hope by Trump that this would extend beyond November, beyond the midterms, maybe even into 2023, that has already been dashed. Um, the second thing Judge Deary did that's worth talking about is, is throw cold water, really an ice bath, upon Trump's vague claims that he may have declassified some of these documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago, either by waving his hand over them and shouting declassify, or by simply thinking the word declassify while absconding with them from the White House. Judge Deary told Trump and his legal team, look, you know, if you don't have any evidence that you declassified these documents, if you are unwilling to put forth a shred of proof that you declassify these documents, then that's case closed for me because this is a real court and the way it works in real court rather than in Judge Eileen Cannon's kind of kangaroo court <laughs> is that you have to put forth evidence to support your claims and if you don't, I won't believe them. And so it looks very clearly like Judge Deary's not here to mess around, that he's going to be done with this very quickly and that he is not going to allow Trump's uh, bizarro claims of secret declassification stand in the way of any impending decision. And that all is a very good thing for the rule of law and a very bad thing for Donald Trump. And uh, also to file under the sound of worms turning is this very abrupt uh, refusal of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, to accede to the stay uh, that Judge Cannon had put into place. 
Yes. And, and what a breath of fresh air this was because we have been stuck in canon land for so long. And she has, as I think we all know now, issued a series of strange orders um, that halted the criminal investigation into Donald Trump um, by telling the federal government that it was prohibited from reviewing the seized materials uh, for any criminal investigative purposes. Now, to be quite clear, uh, federal judges literally do not have the constitutional authority to halt criminal investigations. Maybe Judge Cannon was asleep through that semester of law school, but as a rule, federal judges don't get to just bigfoot the FBI and say, oh, your investigation has to go on ice right now. And that, I think, was a big factor behind the 11th Circuit's decision and the speed of its decision. The 11th Circuit said pretty early on, look, there are virtually no circumstances under which a federal judge can even try to just halt a criminal investigation. Like, that's not how any of this works. And those circumstances are certainly not present here. And that would be enough for us to lift Judge Cannon's stay and say Trump loses. But the 11th Circuit decided to go on. And I appreciate that because in doing so, it really clarified one of the most befuddling aspects of this case, which is that Cannon had said to the FBI and the Justice Department, all right, you're not allowed to look at these documents for criminal investigative purposes, but you are allowed to look at them to assess potential damage to national security. As FBI officials told her and then told the 11th Circuit, it is literally impossible to draw a line between those two purposes. The exact same officials who are doing damage assessment, who are looking at these files to discover whether, say, they contain information about spies who are still working in the field undercover, those are the folks who are going to be investigating Trump for criminal purposes as well. There's not just no bright line between these. There, there's no line, period. And so what Cannon effectively did was stop the FBI from going over these documents to discover whether spies had been compromised, whether national security had been damaged, whether there was a possibility that the United States was endangered by Trump's seizure and unsecure storage of these documents. And the 11th Circuit went way out of its way in this decision to say, look, 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 Judge Cannon did not understand this case. Judge Cannon did not understand what the government was asking for and what she did could actually jeopardize national security. And so among all of the other reasons that we have to block her decision, we want to be really clear that judges can't do this stuff, that this is garbage, basically, in so many words, and that the FBI has to be allowed to look at classified materials that were absconded with in order to determine whether they may have imperiled national security, and that judges don't get to step in and say, oh, you have to blindfold yourself, and if you happen to look at these documents with some kind of criminal investigative aims in mind, I might hold you in contempt of court. The 11th Circuit said, unacceptable, irredeemable, this cannot happen. And, you know, as you said at the outset, this was not three flaming liberals on the 11th Circuit. This was two judges appointed by Donald Trump and one liberal, and it was a unanimous decision. So it, it doesn't get much clearer than that, um, that Judge Cannon erred terribly and that the 11th Circuit has no time for her nonsense. And just a quick beat mark on Tish James and more of the net closing. 
what happened this week in New York and why does it matter that it's not just Donald Trump? It's a big, big net. Yeah, another rubber band around the watermelon from Tish James, this time Attorney General of the state of New York. She filed a civil suit that is really interesting because she's accusing Trump and his children, except for Tiffany and Barron, of violating a slew of uh, uh, criminal laws in the state of New York, including business fraud, real estate-related fraud, criminal misrepresentations of financial transactions. But note that what she filed here was not like a, a you know criminal charge, but a civil suit. And the reason why is that New York State has this law that allows the attorney general to essentially either abolish or completely restructure corporations that have a track record of persistent fraud and criminal misrepresentation. And that if the attorney general brings and wins one of these suits, she can essentially banish the officers of that corporation from continuing to do business in the state of New York, in addition to collecting a huge amount of money from the defendant for their many, many years of illegal conduct. And so what Tish James is doing here isn't just a publicity stunt, as Trump has claimed, and it isn't just a run-of-the-mill lawsuit. What she's doing is trying to prevent the Trump organization and its subsidiaries and its officers from even operating within the state of New York. She's really trying to shut down what some call the Trump crime syndicate from doing anything in New York for at least five years and possibly longer. And I think that is a very smart approach. It is fundamentally political, but, you know, she's an elected official and this is what the laws of the state allow. And I think this is another effort to hit Trump where it really hurts, which is in his money-making ventures, and to avoid the extremely high bar of criminal trial where there can be so many delays and it can drag on for years, and to instead try to get this done quickly and just dissolve the Trump organization so that it can't continue this pattern of fraud, in particular defrauding the state of New York. And just for... Um the mind's eye. I need to know if the watermelon in this <laughs> scenario is seated or unseated, Mark. That helps me immensely in preparing for the weeks to come. The watermelon is filled with seeds. It's an old school watermelon like your grandma used to eat. The seeds are going to get everywhere when it blows up. They're going to stick to the wall. They're going to be on the ceiling. It's going to be a nightmare for everybody involved. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen, a seeded, greased watermelon. Uh, that's all for Mark Stern for right now. If you're not a Slate Plus listener, if you are, hang on tight. He's going to come back for more in our bonus segment, which starts right now. So we are back with our Slate Plus listeners behind the Velvet Curtain to hear a little bit more from Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, about some other things that are happening in Lawland. And I think I want to ask you first and foremost, I know the Briar Makes Me Crazy beat is yours and yours alone, <laughs> but I feel that I need to ask you what you make, Mark, of Justice Breyer's first, I guess, big interview post-retirement in which he seemed to express some at least misgivings about how the apolitical neutral court handled Dobbs. 
Yes, uh, this was about as far as Stephen Breyer will go in criticizing the court publicly, and it was still fairly mild by most standards. But he really went out there in this interview with Chris Wallace to say that he was extremely frustrated um, by, by his position in dissent in many of these cases, including the Dobbs decision, of course, that he felt as if his colleagues were applying the law far too rigidly in a kind of wooden way that could, quote, bite them in the back. And he expressed his own distaste or displeasure about the Dobbs decision, saying over and over again that he was very, very unhappy about it, that he was sad that he couldn't persuade his colleagues to share his views, and that, you know, even though, of course, they're all still friends behind the scenes, that it was personally a a difficult thing for him to go through. Now, all of that might sound fairly mild, as I said, but for Breyer to go out there and talk about his emotions and his real sorrow for what the court is becoming and his position on the court in his final years, I think that's notable and suggests that he's not going to spend the rest of his career simply saying that the court is a wonderful kind of candy land where everybody gets lollipops and gummies, but that in fact there is something wrong at that institution and that it's not just Steve Breyer who should be displeased. And I just, as a follow-up, Mark, what did you interpret this language of they write too rigidly, they're writing rigid opinions, um, and it will come around and bite you in the back? I, what, what is he signaling there? I mean, what does rigid mean if, if you're the Briar kind of decoder right now? I think for him, it's this obsession with formalism, right, with very wooden textualism and the style of originalism that purports to sort of read the minds of the framers through a Ouija board or something. And also using those methods to lay down a set of extremely ironclad rules that must apply in every case that can never be reshaped because of the facts or because of the contexts and lead to outcomes that might seem incredibly unjust, but that the court has to swallow because, well, those are just the rules. And this is a fight that Breyer really conducted throughout much of his career on the court. Breyer is the kind of justice who believes in balancing tests, who believes in weighing the costs to both parties in a case, thinking about how a decision will affect not just the litigants before them, but the lower courts, but many other individuals who will be caught in the same situation and trying to come up with a solution that is built on compromise, that is built on a clear-eyed, real-world assessment of what's going to happen if the court lays down a particular rule in a case. And so he was allergic throughout his entire tenure to the kind of ironclad principles that today's court purports to be laying down. You know, today's court just says, well, if it's religious speech, then the religious speech has to win. If it's the death penalty, then the death penalty has to prevail. There's no balancing of interests. There's no consideration of costs. I mean, in Bruin, the gun case, the court expressly said through Justice Thomas that judges cannot consider the real world effects of gun control laws when assessing their constitutionality. So even if a gun control law has a fairly minimal burden on the right to bear arms, 
and an extraordinary benefit to the public by reducing gun violence, that doesn't matter for constitutional purposes, according to Justice Thomas. And that is just anathema to Justice Breyer's entire jurisprudence. And so I think he is continuing this fight to view the law in a more flexible way and to reject the rigidity of a Clarence Thomas or a Sam Alito who want to see the world in black and white and to interpret the law and each case in a way that allows for no room for nuance. And it's interesting, I think in his mind, there is, right, a one-to-one correlation, Mark, between workability, you know, which is his one of his favorite words, yes. and public legitimacy, which is his central concern. And it's really interesting that I think what he's saying in some sense is if the public thinks that your test is a historic or it has horrific consequences that you're not taking into account, or it's not rooted in any doctrine that people understand, that's not just kind of rigid. It's also delegitimizing the court. So I think in his mind, those two things are connected. I wonder if we can turn just briefly, Mark, to Ginny Thomas, who (laughs) I guess has agreed to testify before the January 6th committee. It all feels very uh, murky to me. I guess there is, uh, in theory, an agreement that she's going to come forward and testify. Do you have any sense at all? I know the reporting is a little skinny, but do you have any sense at all about why Ginny Thomas is sort of central still to whatever it is that the committee is looking at and what it is they may ask her? I'm very struck that they seem to, you know, at at least nominally be interested in, uh, you know, what she was doing with John Eastman. But Aren't we more interested in the fact that she was calling election officials and telling them to throw the election? Well, emailing election officials. Sorry, we, don't, yes. we don't quite know. We know that she was sending emails to state legislators in swing states, urging them to essentially overturn the result of the vote in their state and instead assign their electors to Donald Trump, which is based on this theory, the independent state legislature theory, that her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, has been a very vocal advocate for on the court. Um We also know that Ginny Thomas uh, is friends with John Eastman, the attorney who crafted the various legal theories that would have allowed Trump and especially Vice President Mike Pence to reject uh, legitimate electoral votes and instead uh, throw the election for Trump. And we know that Ginny Thomas was at the Stop the Steal rally by the White House on January 6th. She claims that she left early because it was too cold. But it it appears pretty obvious that she is enmeshed in this small elite group of, of lawyers and political activists who were devising these plans to overthrow the election, to stage a legal coup. And so I can certainly understand why the January 6th committee would want to talk with her about the conversation she was having in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th and on the day itself. As you said, the reporting is skinny. All we know is that she will be speaking with the committee. Hopefully, we will get access to a transcript or video of that conversation at some point in the future. But for now, I think it's, you know, clearly a terrible look to have the wife of a justice being investigated by this congressional committee that is looking into a failed coup by the former president. If it happened in another country, if it happened in a developing country, you would be rolling your eyes and calling it a banana republic. And so for that reason, I want to tie this 
this back to what you were saying about Justice Breyer and legitimacy. Yes, he thinks the court gains legitimacy when it is more flexible, when it creates workable doctrines that normal people can understand. But at the same time, in this interview, he told Chris Wallace, I'm not going to criticize Ginny Thomas, whom I like, and sort of almost defended her by saying that the wives of Supreme Court justices have to make decisions about how to lead their lives and careers. And that is a principle I agree with in the abstract. But when you have the wife of a Supreme Court justice actively interfering in these controversies that will go before the Supreme Court, I think it becomes a very different question. And I was disappointed to see that Breyer still, even though he's not having to work with Clarence Thomas day in, day out, he still won't say what every reason reasonable person can see, which is that this is an incredibly inappropriate role for the spouse of a justice to take on, and that regardless of his personal affection for her, which I will choose not to judge, even if I find it mystifying, he still has a good reason and I think a responsibility to tell the public that as a justice, he cannot condone this kind of egregious conflict of interest, and that the ethical considerations here are just so obvious and very damaging to the court's legitimacy. Mark, before uh, we say goodbye for this week, I do have to ask you to update us on a death penalty decision that comes out of the court on Thursday night. Uh, I think a lot of folks may have missed it, but it's important. Very important, very sad. This is the case of Alan Miller, who is on death row in Alabama, who several years ago exercised his right under state law to choose death by nitrogen gas instead of by lethal injection. He said correctly that Alabama prison officials are very bad at locating veins. Once when he had to have blood drawn, it took them half an hour. They bruised up his arm. It was it was terrible. And he said, look, I would like to, you know, under this state law, choose nitrogen instead of lethal injection. The state lost his request form. Somewhere along the line, prison officials lost the form that said, I am exercising my right to die by nitrogen gas. And the state decided rather than give him the opportunity to fill it out again, rather than honor his original request, it was just going to plow ahead and execute him by lethal injection. He, of course, objected in court and a Donald Trump appointed judge sided with him and found that it was pretty clear that he did submit this form, that the prison lost it through its own negligence, and that he had a right to require the state to honor his choice to die in the less painful and more dignified way. The 11th Circuit upheld that Trump judge's decision, and yet the state of Alabama raced to the Supreme Court and by a five to four vote persuaded the justices to clear away the halt on his execution and to let the lethal injection move forward. Now, ironically, it didn't because while the state was able to strap him to a gurney on Thursday night, it could not access his veins before the death warrant expired. And so, ironically, the very reason why he didn't want to die by lethal injection, prison officials' inability to access veins, is the reason why his lethal injection was a failure and will have to be done again at a certain date. All of this is so horribly grisly. I mean, I think it, it's it's really devastating to even think about. The one maybe silver lining or ray of hope is that Justice Amy Coney Barrett 
sided with the three liberals in dissenting from the court's decision to let this lethal injection move forward. And this is the third time that Justice Barrett has voted with the liberals in siding against a state that's trying to execute someone. And so it does appear there is a real possibility, not a certainty, but a possibility that Justice Barrett may be more moderate on the death penalty than the court's five men, that maybe she takes this whole Catholic pro-life thing seriously, or she has real jurisprudential concerns about the way that capital punishment is being carried out, or she doesn't like the abuse of the shadow docket to allow these last-minute executions. Whatever the reason, it does seem that Barrett will sometimes vote with the liberals in these cases. On a 6-3 court, it doesn't matter to the outcome, but it is slightly encouraging to see that the the six-justice block in the majority is not always voting in lockstep to let states kill these people in whatever way they want. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts, the law, elections, state elections, all the things at Slate.com. Mark, thank you very, very much for being with us. Next time we speak, I think we're going to be previewing what looks to be another Rock'em Sock'em term. So um, hydrate. And as always, thanks for joining. Dahlia, congratulations on your brilliant book, which I so loved. I hope you enjoy the rest of your book tour and that your voice can survive until we will meet here once again to talk about the horrors that await us in this upcoming Supreme Court term. Thanks, Mark. And so now to Washington, D.C. and a live event at Politics and Prose hosted by not me, but the exceptional Professor Michelle Goodwin. Michelle is a dear friend of this show. She is Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She is visiting at Georgetown this year. Michelle's work has been a guiding light for me in thinking through reproductive justice. Her 2020 book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, was as prescient then as it is pressingly urgent today. Michelle is also a triple threat. She's host of the podcast On the Issues for Ms. Magazine. So it was utterly and completely my honor that she wanted to come to an in-person event full of in-person persons to talk about my brand new book, Lady Justice, that dropped this week. So much of my thinking in this book has been shaped by her scholarship, and the scholarship of a lot of other women you will hear us talk about. So here is Michelle and me, Dahlia Lithwick, starting off with a question about another of my favorite writers and thinkers about the law, Polly Murray. So you start off with talking about Polly Murray early in the book. And many people don't know about Polly Murray, and you do such a beautiful job in paying tribute and homage to her and her legacy, or they and their legacy. Uh, tell us about Polly Murray and why it is that Polly is front and center in the discussion about Lady Justice. I mean, I would start by saying uh, anybody in this room who went to law school, uh, I would be surprised if you learned about Polly Murray, but I certainly did not. And um, I learned about Polly Murray through the writing of uh, some uh, some friends, some of whom are in this room. 
Um, and I learned about Polly Murray uh, through the writing principally of black women who were trying to say that while we were obsessed to near derangement with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in many, many ways, Polly Murray had done much of the groundwork, the spade work, uh, on uh, both gender and racial equality in the 14th Amendment, even before Ruth Bader Ginsburg came on the scene. To before her, she was in law school. Before she was in law school. To her immense credit, let's just say that Ginsburg credited... She did. Polly Murray. On video. On video, but also on, you know... In, in a famous brief. In a famous brief, and, and, and as though she were co-counsel. Uh, so Polly Murray, for me, becomes very emblematic of... Some of the questions that are shot through this book about who gets credit and who gets famous, um, who does the work, and who is you know recognized for the work. Uh, frequently, those things map onto black women and white women historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just became really, really obsessed with the idea that someone who had desegregated lunch counters before anyone else, who had refused to go to the back of the bus long before Rosa Parks, who had written for a law school paper what became the her spine... Her second year of law school. Her second year of law school, that which becomes the spine of Brown v. Board, except no one tells her that her work has been lifted and repurposed for for briefing in Brown v. Board. She finds out after that her own work had been used. And so for me, I think it becomes a symbol both of, you know, these questions around who do we obsess about and think Mm -hmm. are our heroes, but more deeply, I think the way women do the work. Because women frequently, and some of these women in the book um, are not famous, uh, just do the work, and they don't always get credited, and they often work in huge groups, and uh, history sometimes forgets them. And so for me, that becomes a theme throughout the book because, and maybe I should have started here, this book in some ways is trying to fit into the huge RBG-shaped hole in our sort of imaginative mm-hmm. lives. We miss her. We long for her. We're waiting for the second coming. And I think... Coming through that door. Coming through the door. <laughs> yes. And I think, you know, with all due respect to RBG, who was extraordinary, there are what I think of as sort of Ruth Baby Ginsburg's all around us every day doing the work. And we have to stop longing for that which is gone and really lift up that which is all around. The Ruth Baby Ginsburg's and the Ruth Mama Ginsburg's, right? When we think about Polly Murray, who yeah. wrote a book that, as you talk about here, that Thurgood Marshall said was the Bible of the civil yes. rights movement, her book on race laws. Yep. I mean, really tremendous. So, so definitely worth finding out more about Polly Murray and her incredible legacy. So, I want to take us back. I want to take us back to first what inspired you to become a journalist because you went to law school and you went into practice. So what was the transition? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The answer to that question is if you definitely want to leave the law, you should do divorce law in Reno. (laughs) So after um, I left my clerkship, I clerked on the Ninth Circuit and I left my clerkship and I 
Um, this is the part of the story where I copped at having like a teeny little gambling addiction after um, <laughs> clerking in Reno, and I loved Reno, and I wanted to stay there. And, and the boom legal industry is, in fact, divorce law. So I did a couple years at a firm there, and I was so deeply unhappy because we were just fighting over the Tupperware day in and day out. And so I, with all due respect to... Um, Tupperware matri- matri- and matchmaking. Matrimony. And matrimony. <laughs> They're great people. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And so then I sort of stumbled into covering the Microsoft trial for Slate. I don't think anyone thought I was sticking around. I kept begging them to like tell me if I was covering it the next week because I'd buy a second suit. Um, (laughs) And so I was just incredibly lucky to be at the right place at the right time at the right magazine and um Maybe the last thing I'd say on this is that because I didn't understand the Microsoft trial, <laughs> I had not taken antitrust, I didn't understand what an operating system was, I just went into that trial and did comedy, like day after day, <laughs> just wrote jokes, he Jack's nodding because he had to edit me. Um, and so I think another that, joke. that was, that was, was essentially my entree. And I, this is not, I want to be really careful because I think women sometimes tell their origin stories as though everything is sort of hapless, like stumbling around and like slipping in goo and it wasn't entirely slipping in goo there was a lot of slipping in goo but I think I was just very very lucky that I landed A at an internet magazine when internet magazines were new but also at a magazine that really kind of let me cover the law the way I wanted to and didn't in any way try to clip my wings well I wanted to ask that question because I want to go more recent and then fill in that space in the book you talk about how you loved what you did at the court, but how you quit the court. And we're going to you know, go back, but, but that really resonated with me, how you divorced yourself from the court after being part of, you know, the folks that were covering the court were a lot of really impactful women. And maybe you can talk about what that experience was, but then what led you to say, okay, I'm done with the court in the way in which you had been doing your work previously. I mean, I think the short answer is that I sat through the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I was in the room when Christine Blasey Ford testified. I didn't think that there was a process, much less a fair process. I think that when Judge, then Judge Kavanaugh started shouting and smashing the table and kind of threatening uh, Senator Klobuchar, some of the women sitting in the room, the women reporters, it was not a big room, and you could see their shoulders coming up around their ears. There was just a real feeling of, for me at least, that it was beyond just a story, that there was some sense of menace, and I'm even gonna say the word violence, and that it was very difficult having sat through that to kind of go through the quick step normalization. Now he's been confirmed. We're going to say that there was an investigation. There wasn't. And now we're all going to just call him Justice Kavanaugh and treat him as though he is Justice Kennedy. And for me, partly because I felt as though, and and this is a through line in in not just the book, but um, the work I've done at Slate on um, Me Too and due process, you can't have a fake process, pretend it's a process, and then normalize it, because then you are, in fact, complicit in that process. And so 
I for months and months, and Mark Stern, my colleague, is here, and he will tell you. I just said I had a cold and I can't go to the court, and like <laughs> I tripped and I can't go to the court. And after about a year, I think of just saying I was covering something. My editor said, "You know what's going on?" And I said, "I think I'm allergic to normalizing that." And again, with huge credit to my colleagues who go in and still do it, I just felt that to just sit there and pretend that what had happened had been legitimate would make me complicit in something that I felt wrong about. And and I think that I probably over-identified with Christine Blasey Ford for reasons we can talk about or not, but it seemed to me that this act of simply stepping over her, of turning to her and saying, oh, I believe you, we all believe you, Chuck Grassley believed her, mm-hmm. but sorry, just felt like perpetrating such a deep act of violence upon her. And then I guess just to, to, to land where you started, when Dobbs comes down mm-hmm. and Justice Gorsuch is one of the people who is happily involved in ending Roe v. Wade, it felt as though that entire system of being complicit in acting as though this was a normal court right. fell apart for everyone else. Right. Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, the whole... Well, you said, and I, and I want to get to the book, but you just opened a door, so I'm just going to... put the shoe in there my, a little bit. Come and into then, my right. therapy room. <laughs> Christine Blasey Ford, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, that there was something that resonated for you in her telling her story. And I'd have to say that around the country, that seemed to be the case. There were women who flew to Washington, D.C. I had students coming to my office in tears, shaking, just watching those hearings and and being traumatized, though the word that they were using was trauma and violence. So you're not alone in that. But what was the way in which you related to her and what she was saying to Congress, the Senate? Uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, I, and there's uh, material in the book about, you know, my coming forward and talking about a judge on the Ninth Circuit, Alex Kaczynski, who there had been allegations about his conduct, and I waited a very, very long time until I reported what I knew in a public fashion. And so I had already a deep sense, Michelle, that of complicity and of mm-hmm. what it is to keep secrets and what it is to hold on to something for decades because the power structures that exist demand that. They demand that of women. Of women in order for us to succeed. And so I was already, I think, carrying a, a little bit of that. But I think I also really had a, a deep sense that all of us, have to make these hard decisions in our lives about how long we stay within systems, doing good from within, even though the systems are flawed, Mm -hmm. and at what point we say, I cannot continue to legitimize this system or put my imprimatur on this system. And one of the through lines in the book is one lawyer after another that I interviewed kind of agonizes about these questions of, the entire edifice Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the constitutional and statutory system under which we live is not super great for women. And it was built to be not super great for women or people of color or immigrants or LGBTQ people I could go on. So we live in a system and every woman in this book works within a system that in some sense is the architect of their own failures and losses. And every single woman in this book goes through different versions of saying, you know, um, Becca Heller uh, at IRAP essentially says, 
using the master's tools to take down the master's you know, house, end of story, this is what I got. I'm using the system to try to you know, better the system. But there are other people who are much more elegiac, Anita Hill. So eloquently sort of talks about a system that ground her down, that she continues, continues, continues to try to fix. And so I think that anxiety about how long do I stay, how long do I say this is normal, is, and I love that I'm in D.C. because I think I don't know anybody in D.C. certainly who was working, you know, anywhere uh, around the government in in these years who didn't have a version of this. And it's super interesting because I, I know this is a long answer, but I will say after I wrote... Speak your truth. Speaking my <laughs> truth. After I wrote the piece saying, I don't think I can go in the court building and pretend this is okay anymore, I got a flood of letters from constitutional law professors saying, that's how I feel, that's why I'm not teaching con law anymore now that Justice Kavanaugh is on the court. And I was about it. I was like, no, you have to stay. I can quit. I'm just, uh, you know, take me out, put put Mark in. He's better than me anyway. But you can't stop teaching con law. We can't have the only people teaching con law be the people who think the system is awesome. And so I really understand what it means to step out and how complicated that is. I think it's visceral. But for me, that was kind of a line I couldn't I appreciate how you frame that because that's a tension that many people will understand and it's certainly a tension that many women will understand the difficulty of staying in a system and recruiting more people into a system when they've been sexually harassed, when they've been inappropriately touched, when they've been groped, when they've been denied the promotion that they deserved and yet recruit other people to say, come on in, we need more. I mean, it's a really difficult position to be in. And so you take us through a journey involving so many women, you know, these are the the baby Ruths, as you were talking about. And Sally Yates, the first no. All right, that begins really the conversation in some ways about this journey of women that you cover. And you mentioned meeting her. So tell us about that first no and why you decided that this is the start in some ways for the book. I mean, I think it was the start for so many of us, right? It was days after the inauguration and the Women's March, you know, had, was, was going on and we were trying to figure out how to recalibrate being. And then all eyes turned to this woman who's the acting attorney general who really thought she was going to just kind of skate until Jeff Sessions got confirmed. I think she says Mm -hmm. in the book, you know, the acting attorney general signs up for long boozy lunches because nothing happens until the real attorney general is confirmed. And suddenly she finds out in a taxi on the way to the airport, by the way, she had just been in White House counsel's office uh, talking about another matter and nobody told her the travel ban was coming, and she finds out in a cab on her phone, reading it in the New York Times like the rest of us, that, oh, by the way, they've just passed this travel ban, and she, you know, kind of goes through the process of explaining almost exactly what you and I just talked about. You know, what do I do? How do I put the imprimatur of the Justice Department, how do I send DOJ lawyers out to defend something I believe to be, first of all, you know, in violation of both the Constitution and statutes, but also to defend something that in her mind is Jim Crow, in her mind is so packed with anti-Muslim animus. 
Explicitly. Explicitly. She says, she says, I, you know, you heard everything that the, the nominee for president said on the campaign trail about what this was. It was a Muslim ban. So she makes the decision after agonizing and talking to her staff that she can't support it. And for me, I think I start with her both because we all were just, I think, amazed that someone could do that and do that on a dime and jeopardize, you know, their career at the Justice Department. But also that in hindsight, and I say this at the end of her chapter, so few people did it after. Mm -hmm. The number of people who said, I cannot do this, is shockingly low compared to the number of people who said, I'm going to go ahead and do it, and then I'm going to write a book, and then I'm <laughs> going to get right. super rich, and then I'm going to get a gig on TV. Right. And so for me, she stands out because she's the beginning of a thing that never really continued. Right. Well, it's also interesting, too, because when you think about the women that you cover, so many of them stayed in the trenches, and it wasn't, let me not do my role, and let me write a book about the behind-the-scenes trauma, but never having stood up, right? And you have a lot of standing up, including in Charlottesville with Robbie Kaplan. And you were there. So you're at these hot spots. What, what is it? You know, yeah, it I'm, takes you to these hot spots. I was the Where's Waldo of like <laughs> exactly. horrible things that happened in 2017. That was just, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I, was, I was in Charlottesville. I had lived there for 18 years. And that was when the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists marched. That was my synagogue. That was my streets. That was... Our parking lots, my kids, right or wrong, went to preschool right where the Confederate statues were. So they. They're hard to avoid in many parts of the South, to be they, clear. They're hard to avoid. And also, my son's preschool teacher just sent me a photo of him, like posing in front of. Here he is in front of, in front of, uh, 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 you know, one of the two statues that was at issue. So this was our life. And I think Robbie is interesting for a couple of, you know, you all know Robbie Kaplan because she was the person who represented Edie Windsor, and that becomes mm -hmm. the case that kind of strikes at the heart of the Defense of Marriage Act, and that becomes the launch pad for Obergefell and marriage equality. So Robbie, I think, you know, we could all say, and I think you could say this about yeah. all these women, like, it, it would have been enough. She could have just stopped at Windsor, and she would have been, in my view, a warrior of uh, legal and, and, and uh, social justice, but Robbie... Uh, is a person who had just started her own boutique law firm just a few weeks before. She had left Paul Weiss. She wanted to do pro bono work. She's sitting in her office with, like, on folding tables. She's got a couple of little baby lawyers with her and some interns. And they're watching Charlottesville on TV over pizza, which is not the food of choice for Nazi no. viewing. And the and all of the like not at all. interns are crying. And Robbie just picks up the phone. And actually, we had known each other not well then, but she knew I lived there. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you can find me some plaintiffs, I'm going to come down and do this because the Justice Department is not going to investigate civil rights violations. They're not going to try to figure out whether or how these people came inciting violence and in fact resulting in death and disfigurement and, and deep trauma in the community. And she just came down, filed um, under the KKK Act, which is more or less a statute that she dusted off. It had been used right. a little bit in the 60s, but she dusted it <coughs> off and repurposes it. And she's, for me, really interesting because they filed in 2017. 
and they only just went to trial 2021. And all of their defendants dropped their phones in the toilet rather than turn over their phones. Mm -hmm. All of the defendants mysteriously couldn't find any record. I mean, this was a misery from start to finish. And by the way, some of her defendants, like Chris Cantwell, Mm -hmm. every time he tweeted, would have a swarm of people threatening her and her family and Karen Dunn, who brought the suit with her. And she did it quietly, Mm -hmm. endlessly, sort of meticulously, And then they get this $26 million judgment in November of 2021. And I don't know if people paid attention. I thought it was one of the most important trials of my lifetime. But it's another thing that vindicates justice in the deepest way. And we kind of slide over it. Why do you think that we slide over it? Because you're right. I mean, at a time in which our gravest threat happens to be white supremacy and nationalism within this country and its various tentacles, whether it's the school shootings and finally so much of it connects back, the anti-abortion efforts that are also connected to white Christian nationalism that has been so deeply weaponized. And so why is it that that just kind of went under the radar? That was huge. I mean, it's interesting because when January 6th happened, having lived through Charlottesville, It was just Groundhog Day for me. In fact, both of my sons just came downstairs and said, this is Groundhog Day, because we had seen every piece of that, including, you know, a failure to prepare, a deep understanding that law enforcement was going to have to do something meaningful, a failure uh, to to adequately prepare for it. And then this sense of complete impunity, Mm -hmm. uh, because we were talking largely about white men. So we can talk about why, with almost unfailing accuracy, Groupings of white men with guns, you know, are treated with impunity. But I think the deeper question is, and and this really is something that I try to probe in the book, we think law means trials. Law doesn't mean trials. Trials are a part of it. But organizing is a part of it. And voting is a part of it. And systems repair is a part of it, too. And one of the reasons that the last three chapters of the book are all on things like gerrymandering and you know one person one vote and and uh uh vote suppression is that i think that we get so it's just we have watched too much law and order people like we really think (laughs) that what happens in courtrooms is the totality of doing justice and we can win a million trials and still lose democracy and so for me i think that one of the things that we don't focus on enough and mark and i have written 20 billion pieces about systems reform but i think we have to really focus not just on trials the chills the thrills you know the kyle rittenhouse was happening at the same time it was riveting but it's not democracy reform and it's not actually justice reform and so for me i think one of the reasons we slide past things is because the things that really matter aren't nearly as exciting as the expectations. They seem mundane. Yeah, of law and order. Right, right. Now, you know, one important aspect of this, 2016 on that frigid early March day, you were inside, I was outside, the arguments, Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead, and you mentioned that as being such a profound moment. Of course, this is before Trump, before the November election. And you frame it as this is important. It's a case that involves two Texas laws that were being challenged. These Texas laws were really abortion ban kind of laws, but just dressed up as not so. One involved, just make your clinics look like emergency rooms, which would cost millions of dollars and cause clinics to shut down. And many did. 
And the other was to require that doctors get admitting privileges at nearby hospitals, even though abortions are incredibly safe and many other procedures had no such requirements. And so this was being challenged, but it was a different court. And you were talking about it was a different court from any time before dealing with questions of reproductive rights because of who was sitting in the court at that time. Yeah, I mean, I called it the last great day for women in justice in America. I had a fever that day. I was so excited because it was, you know, you have to remember, I mean, Roe was decided by nine men. And Griswold versus Connecticut was decided by nine men. And uh, I say in the book, because I think it's hilarious, a fun thing to do is go back and read the transcript of Griswold, because the justices, well-meaning justices, who, by the way, effectuate the right to use contraception in a marriage, won't name the devices that they're talking about, because it's embarrassing to them. So they're all like, la, 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 we don't know if we're talking about, you know, we don't know, we don't want to know, nobody names it. And then you get this kind of who's on first, like, you know, nobody knows exactly what's happening. And for me, I mean, and I say this in the book, if you can't name the thing, you shouldn't be regulating it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it seems to me a sort of simple lesson of women's bodies that if you're too uncomfortable to say the word IUD, (laughs) then don't, don't make judgments about it. So nevertheless, we get good outcomes. We get good outcomes. But for me, it's really powerful to sit during whole women's health and see three women on the bench And it's funny, somebody played it for me on the radio today. There's this amazing moment where the oral advocate, who's a woman, is trying to to talk, and Justice Roberts is going to cut her time off. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, very Ruth Bader Ginsburg-ishly, says to him, I think you should give her a little bit more time to get to the merits (laughs) in the gentlest, most ginger, passive-aggressive way. And he's like, counsel can have more time. And you're just like, yes, because, you know, women are getting to talk and they're getting to, you know, engage in this. And the decision, I think, in Whole Women's Health, it doesn't get enough credit. It's written by Justice Breyer, not a woman, but a feminist by every metric. And it's written in a way that punctures the pretext you're talking about. Texas can't keep saying, this is to make sure that women are healthy when clearly the only plan is to close clinics and it is such a deep reckoning with what is really going on what is pretextual how we think about medicine how we think about women how we think about healthcare. you go back you read it you want to cry yeah and then it's gone in the blink of an eye and we're not going to get that back and so i think for me my sense of of what changed and this is sort of the book begins uh, with there and ends yes. on Dobbs. But what changed is that we thought we were so close. We had three women on the court and we had this unbelievably, I think, transcendently feminist opinion by a man. We were getting there and then we were gone. And in the journey along the way, before we get to Dobbs, one other aspect and, and someone that's covered in the book is mentioned is Bridget Amiri because we begin to see from that five to three decision because Scalia had died and so it's five to three decision in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead and then we begin to see the, the sort of chip away Trump doing what he promised. He said that he would punish women who wanted to have abortions. He would only put on the court justices who would dismantle Roe v. Wade. He's carrying out his promise essentially. And then there's Bridget Amiri, who works at the ACLU. And you cover her in the book. Can you tell us just a little bit about that too, before we get to Dobbs? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a case, and, and Mark Stern and I, I think we're both obsessed with it at the time because it felt like the canary in the coal mine. And these were migrant teens at the border who were in shelters, yeah. and the government had determined that even though this particular young woman had gotten a waiver from the state of Texas, she was allowed to terminate her pregnancy, they wouldn't open the door to let her out of the, I mean, quite literally wouldn't let her, her It's like out false of the imprisonment. I mean, it was just really... Every, she. She did all the things that the government required for her to do. She did all the things. And, you know, there were explicit judicial orders that said open the door and the government would not do it. And Bridget Amiri litigated this, you know, in the D.C. Circuit and ended up winning en banc on the D.C. Circuit. It's an interesting story canary in the coal mine story both because it's a story about women who are being imprisoned mm -hmm. so that they cannot uh effectuate their uh reproductive rights it's also a story about brett kavanaugh auditioning to be on the supreme court because the opinion he wrote in that case was clearly an effort to say look at me look at me i'm gonna drop all the the code words that put me on the the list of um, and that make, like put me up high on the list so, so I think maybe, and this is where it intersects with so much of your work, Michelle, so much of Dorothy Roberts' work, so much of, uh, you know, Peggy Cooper Davis's work, but I think we can learn about where women's reproductive rights are going by looking at black women. Mm -hmm. And this is, and, and migrants, you know, migrant teens who by every other metric should have been allowed to, to uh, terminate her pregnancy. And so I think... This case is important, both because, and by the way, the Justice Department tried to discipline Bridget. I mean, it was unbelievable. Right. She had to, for months, hit refresh. Well, she talked about very recently how much she appreciated you, because as the Justice Department went after her, you came out publicly and showed the emperor has no clothes here. I think Mark and I wrote a piece that she still says. It was the first piece that was written to say, you know, disciplining her would be way beyond any norms or bounds. Um, but I, I think it's also just a story about look and see what they do when people are locked up. Look and see what they do when people are vulnerable, when they don't have counsel, when they may not speak English, because that's what's coming. And maybe that is the pivot for me to Dobbs, because I think a lot of people woke up at the end of June this year and said, what now? What just happened? This isn't possible. Everyone said this couldn't happen. But you were saying even at SB8, we were on, we were on there together, you know, Texas, which was the bookend, right? Like a, a year ago, we were on the line the day in which... When SB8, that was the Texas vigilante bill. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, you, you sort of ticked off these kind of different valences that, that, that are now being blessed. But I think vigilantism is a huge mm -hmm. part of this. Yes. That one of the things that is not, I think we're not clocking, is sort of empowering vigilantes to determine what the law is and then take it on, upon themselves to enforce it. Um, and, and in a sense, Bridget Amiri's story is about, you know, one government official who just decided he was going to save every unborn baby in every shelter. He was, folks will remember, clocking their menstrual cycles. But and you that, can't even make that up, no, really, seriously, someone he keeping was. track of your menstrual cycle. It, it, well, you can. It's called Well, you can, because you write exactly. And it's an excellent book by Bar Margaret Atwood, and yes. you should buy it for your daughters. But yes. I think that, that and your sons. But um, I think that, that uh, what's really important is that 
all of these cases, every single one of these cases, whether it's, you know, Robbie Kaplan and the Nazis, whether it's Brigitte Amiri and these migrants, are the present. They are what's happening now. And so I think about this book as this is not ancient history. This is a bunch of people who saw the signs before most of us saw the signs. And they're all women. And they're women because I think, and this is the controversial proposition in the book and we can debate it if we want to, I think women have a special relationship with the law and legal systems and legal structures. I believe, and I have no empirical proof for this, that women have some sort of muscle memory of the law being used against women because we live on this dangerous seam between the law lifting us up, making us safe, making us free, giving us the vote, letting us have <gasps> credit cards <gasps> in the 70s, and then tilting over into the law incarcerating us. The law saying women in Alabama have to sit in jail because they, they would otherwise endanger their pregnancies. We've tilted over from law making us free, from law being the solution to law being the problem. And my submission, again, I don't know if it's correct, is that women know that in their bones. That there's something in the cellular memory of that. I have to say what that reminds me of and the fact that your book lifts up Polly Murray, that it acknowledges what's happening across so many different dimensions of women who live vulnerable lives, black and Jewish in Charlottesville, women who are migrants, all of that. And I can't help but think what must a mother have said the night before the slave auction to her child? That's the cellular memory. How do you say something good that keeps you whole when you're going to be sold off, you'll never see that child again, and somehow you must leave a message with that child that you are whole, that you are valued, that you matter, and at some point, this country will catch up to that. And I think that is the power and beauty of your book. Oh, thank you. That's a, that's a lovely thing to say. I mean, I think, I think we have to sit in the tension of the Constitution, as we said at the beginning, being the author of great, great discrimination, great hardship, great pain. Uh, anyone who tells you it was perfect from the founding <laughs> is like, what, Ted Cruz, I guess. <laughs> and the rest of us know that we had to claw claw our way into these documents and you know Polly and, Murray and still and still do but I think that the the dream I mean I start with Polly Murray a quote from her because yes. of course she was also a poet um, you're just talking about the dream of freedom and I think that that's a thing that we can do we can't give up on the law or the rule of law. I think like the next best thing is, you know, street fighting and I'm spectacularly bad at street fighting. Uh, <laughs> I've actually never tested that. I, it may Truth out, be told, Dahlia. I may just be like a crazy ninja in a street fight, but I don't think I am. And so I think we have to fight for this thing, this aspirational thing. And every single person in this book comes down ultimately on the side of, I think this thing can lift us all up. I think it can make us all better. And each of them sort of picks up an oar to do that work. But part of the reason I wrote this book is that I think we all have to do that work. It is not for lawsuits. It is not just for, for judges. It is for every single one of us. And it, I hate to say this, but I think it's the work of the rest of our lives. Let me say this, is that I think 
at the core, what we've come to understand is that at the core of our struggle and fight for our democracy is the need for us to reckon with our past and our need to reckon with American slavery, with American Jim Crow, with colonization and all of that. And until we deal with that forcefully, uh, then sadly, we stand the chance of repeating what we've done before. You know, I call this time the new Jane Crow because it looks just like Jim Crow. So with that, Dahlia, would you mind reading this opening to your book from Polly Murray right here? Yeah. One of the things I, I the book ends on um, Stacey Abrams and I love that she writes romance novels. And truly, one of the reasons it's a pink book and I say this in the introduction, is because at some point a constitutional law professor who heard about this project said to me, he was a he, by the way, uh, said to me, why are you going to write a little pink book about the law? So then I had to write a big pink book about the law, but I kind of wanted it to be something of a romance novel, something of, uh, you know, a love letter, because I think it, it, for me, it is a love letter. I mean, I'm so in the tank for the rule of law, it's almost sad. Um, and so I, I end with Stacey Abrams uh, writing romance novels, and I begin with Polly Murray writing poems. And Polly Murray's poems are breathtaking. They are. Breathtaking. Yeah. And so this is just one of the two epigraphs, and we've spoken about this before. I don't even know exactly from which place she writes this, but for me, it is so of this moment. So it's a snippet of, of Polly Murray. Freedom is a dream, haunting as amber wine, or worlds remembered out of time. Not Eden's gate, but freedom lures us down a trail of skulls where men forever crush the dreamers, never the dream. Holly Murray from Dark Testament. Chills, right? She's amazing. Holly Murray giving us chills. Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America was published this past week by Penguin Press. It is also available as an audiobook, and our Amicus listeners get a 25% discount if they go to slate.com slash justice and enter promo code Amicus. That's promo code Amicus at slate.com slash justice. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your comments. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. And Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcasts here at Slate. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. Until then, take good care of yourselves and be well. <laughs>